0: John Teeter.
1: Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hunting season is nearing the end for some folks. Some people are continuing on. My season is pretty much over. There's a late holiday hunt here in New York State, which I will participate in. We'll get our final does of this season, hopefully my son and I, and it'll be an exciting time for us to end the year and start our projects. As everyone knows, I'm on the road working with clients, uh, all over i'm i'm going to be in ohio here in pennsylvania and then over to massachusetts and then and back into my lovely state of new york i love new york uh but new york's tough hunting and um i just want to mention a couple things and just just one thing that was on my mind this morning i was talking to my partner we're kind of like laying out our client schedule this year and going through the cutting and you know i'm looking at my client plans and everything going on we, we you know mentioned a couple things like i don't think folks realize how involved this is you know, it's, some people have called me and said, well, I just wanted to come up and go for a walk. Well, we do a walk, but then I've got 20 or 30 hours on your project beyond the walk. And it isn't one of those things where I just come and draw your map up. There's so many elements of your property that I take a look at. And it's really important to recognize how sophisticated we need to be. And the conversation I had with them this morning was sharp people that hunt in hard areas. So meaning, you know, I hunt in New York state, my deer population is low, my age class isn't you know what some of you all experience and again I'm not putting my hunting you know degrading my hunting or anything like that is it is what it is I hunt my own hunt but thinking more about you know the environments that you hunt in and the sophistication or level of detail and scrutiny that comes with these really hard to hunt areas and I've said this on multiple podcasts and over you know multiple years is it's hard for somebody you know that doesn't have this level of experience hunting tough areas to be able to equate very minute and sophisticated changes to the landscape in order to get results. So I hunt a very hard area. I've killed, yes, a lot of good bucks in my area. And, you know, they may not look comparable to some of those 150, excuse me, 150, 180, 200 inch bucks out in the Midwest, but these are the top 1% of 1% of the deer that, that I'm able to go after and properties that I, you know, landscape and manage. And what I would say is if you're hiring a consultant don't just look at their wall. Their wall is very important, but look at the environments that they're in. And my story is a little unique where, as an example, I bought my own property five years ago and we've killed four impressive deer, you know, for my particular area because of the level of sophistication required to get there. I don't hunt a very good area. And so it goes to show you, you can really make something that is very unproductive, extremely productive, and I was suggesting my partner and were going back and forth. They're like, boy, I just wish my hunting was easier. And and we both went back and forth and said, if if your hunting's easier, you're losing the tip of the spear. You're losing your sharpness and your ability to focus and be concentrated on the key things that make, you know, your property unique and making sure that you're taking it to the next level with the habitat improvements, most importantly. And then having really kind of a I have a pretty diverse perspective, because these, I'm dealing with biological systems. And in these systems, I'm I'm thinking about ways that I can improve every aspect. Water, water infiltration in the landscape is one that I've been focused on in many of the conversations. But I bring this up to say, this is much more sophisticated than sometimes I think people want to go there. So if you buy into the process, you will be successful. It's a matter of time and effort. And I will tell you this, if I can take 46 acres mm-hmm and kill big bucks every single year, and nobody else is managing deer around me, and I'm successful, so can you. And that's the dream story that I want to make sure that people understand. I am not special. I've just done a lot of little things right and doing a lot of those little things and having a good understanding of your environment and it's getting away from these YouTube channels uh, that just kind of they pollute your mind full of uh, information that is not accurate, When uh, we're working on our YouTube channel, you'll get to see new things that are coming out. It'll be game changer for you. It'll start the process over. And my hope is that that type of information, that level of information will really take people to the next level and allow them to be far more sophisticated. And, um, you know, it'll apply to all environments. And uh, I I just want to kind of relate that because I had a long conversation this morning with my partner. You know, I don't have a time today to echo too many things other than we're going to get my... Other favorite guest on Steve Shirk here on the phone, so appreciate you listening to my rant. Here's Steve. Hey, Steve, what's going on, man?
0: Hey, not much. Uh, Pleasure uh, listening to you. They had some some great tips there, and uh, (laughs) hopefully, I can piggyback onto this great conversation. We'll start.
1: Yeah, so you know, um, it's been a bit for us, and we want to really get into you know, you've been successful this season. We're going to talk about that, but we want to talk about the the postseason, you know, aspects of your game because this is where you're strong. You're great at executing, but you're great at planning. You're a planner. And that allows you to help other people be successful, right? You've had numerous clients kill big bucks this year, you know, in your areas where you, you know, you kind of look out for, you're doing all the scouting and pre-planning for everybody. But we want to dial in on you, your specific season, and then post that we want to understand what are you doing now to plan for next season? So let's, let's talk about your year because you killed a very nice buck and we want to talk about, you know, that story and why, why that success happened for you.
0: Yeah. um, Well, and even my success, uh, you know, I talk about every year is usually based on what I'm doing this time of year. Um, Usually right now I will kind of evaluate and I focus more on not what I did right, but what I did wrong. Um, I, I just honestly feel that, you know, whatever, whenever I'm, you know, you know, what I want to say, like wherever I'm failing or wherever I need to improve, I always seem to to relate that into the next season and have better success on what I did right. But when, the more you correct yourself and improve yourself, I think it just hones you better as a hunter. And that's what I've done uh, over the years. And that's really a lot of what I did last year. I think last year um, I focused a lot on getting ahead of deer patterns, predicting deer, uh, you know, just, it always seemed like I was a step behind everything last year um this year i felt i did a lot better job staying ahead you know paying attention to seasonal you know habits and changes and even things that are changing in their environment and uh like i said that's that's what i did that that really totally you know this you know not to jump around too much but this year um i had this was our best guiding season ever Um, we killed 19 bucks um did struggle a little bit in gun season most of those were archery kills but um, and I'm not trying to take credit, but I really, th- really think it all just boils down to every year, you know, re-honing myself and just trying to improve and figuring out more what I did wrong and, you know, then starting to make those things right. And that's really what I'm doing a lot this time of year.
1: Yeah. And that sounds good. And that success kind of speaks for itself. And like I said earlier, sometimes it is about the bucks in the wall to show that you can achieve that level of success, but we're already past that point. We're at the point of you know how are we making things easier for ourselves and easier for our clients so when it comes down to you and your particular situation and i want to actually focus on your deer that you killed and yep. i want to dial into that process of what are the criteria that you used how did you approach that deer what was the seasonality when you decided that it was as a possibility to kill him so let's let's get into some of those details
0: yeah I hit deer a little bit in archery season um i uh did have one close crazy encounter with it in uh think it was in November. Uh, I'll share the story real quickly. I'll try to break it down, but I did a hang and hunt and, uh, you know, in the dark and uh, I couldn't find any tree with cover. It's in November and, you know, you start to lose, lose a lot of your leaves. So I didn't have much for cover and uh, I got two sticks up. I only brought three and uh, my third stick, the the strap, it's one of those push where it's not like a crank ratchet like on most climbing sticks, but you got to push the button to feed the strap through. Well, it popped out, and then as soon as it popped out, when I wanted to tighten it up, I kid you not, my my headlamp died, and the whole woods just went black. And then I don't don't know what I was thinking, but I knew I only had about 10 minutes till daylight. I should have used my phone light, but I literally went to the bottom of the tree And I was like, I'm just going to wait till daylight, refix the strap and set up. Well, I kid you not, as soon as it got daylight, this buck that I ended up shooting in gun season came right into within mere feet of my tree and spooked. Had I been able to get that strap up, I think I would have killed him with a bow. Um, So it was just kind of a unique, you know, part to hunting this deer, but, um, I, I honestly saved the first week of uh, Pennsylvania gun season to, to actually hunt New York because my son had a, a lot of basketball um, in the early part of New York gun season this year. I knew that ahead of time. So I was like, I'm just going to plan to hunt New York, uh, mostly during the first week of Pennsylvania gun. I booked a client for three days, and fortunately, she shot her buck opening day a gun. So I was going to be pretty well freed up, however... Um, I went into Pennsylvania gun season thinking I would have my Pennsylvania tag filled and maybe being a little too confident, but this was the first year and probably like 12 or 13 years, maybe 15, if I went to, that. I actually went into the Pennsylvania gun season with the buck tag. So I, uh, I, you know, I really started to think that this was the deer that I wanted to hunt heavily. Um, you know, I started hunting that deer the second day it was, uh, Obviously it's not, you know, for people that know me, it's not the biggest deer I had on camera or knew of, and it was a really nice deer. I One of my goals as a hunter that I've never been able to achieve is I have yet to kill a buck with a greater than 20-inch inside spread, and I knew this deer had that and probably more. And just the uniqueness and the character that he had, like, it was this something that I wanted to pursue. So, um the buck was mainly living in a particularly small clear cut about, I don't know, 12 to 15 acres. Um, But I looked at the weather forecast and what I noticed was it looked like we were going to get some pretty decent winter weather, uh, you know, come early that week. And I knew that buck just like many others. Um, Although I had no history with this deer doing what it ended up doing, but In this particular clear cut, there's always one of the bigger deer in this area will will always bed in that cut and pretty much live in there. There's there's browse, there's cover, but one thing that was lacking was thermal cover. There's not a hemlock, a pine, anything in there. Plus, it's at really high elevation. Um, It gets a lot of wind. So I'm thinking, just like every other buck that I know that's ever lived in this cut, once winter weather comes, they shift about a half mile. Out onto this wintering point. It's kind of like a somewhat of like a uh, I want to say it points a little bit southwest, southeast, more of a south slope. But I was confident based on what every other big deer in that area has done, I was confident that they were going to shift. He was going to shift on that slope. Um, That's exactly what he did. Um, I think the biggest key, and I don't want to ramble on too much without letting you jump in, but. The, the biggest key for me that like I touched on earlier was I I've a lot of times hunting individual deer. I tend to always be a step ahead or like, I don't, I don't always like to guess I'm, I'm looking for some type of tip or camera picture, some type of information of what that deer's done before. And a lot of times I, I've, I've been a step behind. And, you know, in this case, I based off of historical information and, you know, past history with other bucks. And that's exactly what that deer did. He shifted to that wintering point. Um, That's where I ended up killing him. But you can talk a little bit more about it, although I don't know exactly um, how much you want me to to add on to that. But I can get more detailed, Yeah, no,
1: I want to get detailed. And I want to go back to the beginning. So we had an archery season interaction where – you know, you, <clears throat> you know, things didn't work out for you in the tree stand and, and uh, the deer spooked. And obviously this, you know, this deer was one of those targets. Obviously this is a different location than you're talking about when they shift and there's that temperature trigger, which you brought up and that will emplace deer in certain areas. Again, it's important to pay attention to these other factors. It sounds like you have some historical knowledge too, which is completely relevant to, you know, how deer uh, utilize the landscape. And that's very critical to people taking a look at the landscape and recognizing If I'm going to do improvements or changes, you know, that may shift their movement uh, in accordance with, you know, temperature. So there's this, always this temperature trigger that I think we have a tendency to focus in on, which is one of your primary factors of deciding, you know, when to go after deer. And I know that's, we'll probably get to that, but getting into the the strategy of a deer moving to a location, but you've got, there is hunting pressure around you. You're, You're not the sole hunter that is dialed into these particular deer in these areas, I kind of want to know, like, your steps to think about how would you how would you intercept or have an encounter with this deer, and what were the what were the factors that went into other than him shifting a location, going you going after this deer? What were the what were the indicators or factors that said, okay, this is a higher probability? Because we got to know time of year and specifics. Yep. You know, I, I know you said gun season, so you know, in this case, they're kind of post rut. So, what are they looking for? What do you think that they're going to be focused in on? That you know, maybe. You know, uh, an opportunity for you to be successful.
0: Yeah, well, what I did notice was a lot of our bucks. You know, I know the rut every year, but it just seemed like a lot of our bucks coming in the gun season were pretty much in that post rut phase, pretty well rutted out. Um, you know, daytime activity started to decrease. A lot more nighttime pictures, just less movement. So, you know, I, I wasn't factoring much rut activity. I just figured this year. You know, wanted wanted to start that post rut recovery phase, and uh, you know he went right back to the same clear cut uh, where he had been in most of October and late September. Um, it's just really, it's you know, it's full, of, it's full of browse, full of cover. Uh, there's usually a pretty decent wind advantage up there, um, and that's exactly what he did. But you know, like I said, just like every other deer that I've hunted or, you know, scouted, whatever, put clients on in the past. Like this, there was another bigger buck in this cut last year, and I think got killed. But what's amazing is I see this so many times. If it's a really prime location. A, another dominant deer of that area will use that spot. And, you know, that deer did, but. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest Key for me was looking at that weather forecast and also figuring out you know what the hunting pressure was like in that area. Um, fortunately, I I did have time on opening day to take a ride kind of around the perimeters of that area and to have minimal pressure, which gave me a little more confidence that you know patterns would be be pretty more you know much consistent when you don't throw hunting pressure in the mix. Um, but, you know, looking in with that weather front coming, I just knew that even though that deer, you know, had everything that it, it needed in, in that primary bedding area, I knew that because given the factor, that, you know, we got tremendous amount of cold wind, snow, that it didn't have the, the thermal cover that it needed, you know, in its primary spot. And um, that was the biggest key for me, you know, getting an opportunity it was figuring out that that deer was going to shift. And in that general area, there isn't a lot of good wintering habitat, except for this one point um, about a half mile from there. And just like every other deer, like I said, that has lived in that area in the past, they all have done that same thing. They'll, 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 you know, they'll shift once winter comes and uh, they'll spend the entire winter just in a small area. Um, and that's exactly what that deer did. Um, kind of, uh, some, some more, I guess, humor about the story was, so I tried to get ahead of the shift, um, that I predicted. And so I hunted that point half a day, the second day of the season, which would be really my first day to gun hunt. And the deer never showed up. I ended up only sitting there like half a day. I just felt like, uh, Things just weren't quite right yet. That front was arriving a little bit too late. Weather was still pretty decent. And my plan was to hunt that spot three, four days in a row, given the fact that the weather was going to be pretty pretty winter-like, cold and windy, snowy for several days. So the, the second morning, or you know, second day, um, I got to the parking spot real early, went to load my gun, and uh, couldn't find the magazine for my gun. Long story short, it was sitting under my dog that has separation anxiety and even goat rides in the vehicle. You know, when I go hunting, I know it sounds crazy, but um, so I went, went to that spot with a single-shot weapon. You know, I just could only put, put one round in, and I got out there a little bit too late uh, just for the fact that I spent all morning looking for looking for my clip, and I got out to that point, um, and it was just super confident though, that that deer was going to be there because it's a really good leeward side. We had west winds and usually the buck bedding is on the east side. So I peeked over the east side of the hill and, uh, sure enough, I, I see a small buck way out there and I cranked my scope up to 10 power just to be sure. Cause at first I just saw a deer. I didn't know whether it was a buck or a doe and I cranked the scope up to 10 power and once again, realized it was a small buck. And I kind of just waited there and watched that buck, you know, go out of out of sight. And then I think I was just a little bit frustrated because I, you know, with the, the whole losing my clip and getting out in there a little bit late, I just, I just felt a little bit off. But with snow on the ground, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to kind of peek on each side of this ridge, this point, and see if I can you know, catch this buck bedded that I think is going to be out here, you know, just as I predicted. And um, I had most of the buck beds marked on my phone um, through prior scouting. Whenever I find really good buck beds, I'm sure you and other people do the same, you know, I'll mark them on on my phone on on my Spartan Forge app. And uh, so I, I looked at my phone real quick and I saw like I was really close to five or six different buck beds Um, in fact, the one, the closest one was like 15 yards for me. And I thought I could see it. Well, I took about two steps and I swear to God, the, the bed that was closest to me that gets used probably more than any other, that buck jumped out of, um, the deer was within 15 yards of me for 10 or 15 minutes. And I couldn't see it. It was there the whole time. Swear to God. Yep. So he jumps up even worse. So it's like, you know, just starting to bound off and I pulled a gun up on it and I forgot to crank my scope back down. So (laughs) all I saw was Brown and there might be some people that are upset that listen to this, but I'll be honest with you. I shot, it was just one of them real quick. Like I didn't even understand my scope was didn't fully comprehend that it was on 10 power. It all happened so quick, but I pull up, I see Brown super close, maybe not even 20 yards as he's bounding off and I shoot and the buck goes right down. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And I kind of started to celebrate a little bit too much. And I, and then all of a sudden I look and the buck's getting back up and then I have to reach in my pocket for another bullet. And by the time he did that, you know, he gets away. Um, so then it, you know, I'm really, I went from like a super high point to, to, you know, now I'm like, oh, you know, oh, no, am I going to potentially lose this buck? Um, and it gets worse because we only had high elevation snow. So I was hoping that I'd be able to track him and follow him. And uh, once he got out of out of snow, the blood trail got super thin. And then he got down in the swampy bottom. And I ended up bumping him once without even knowing, but I found his bed. And I did know where I hit the deer. Like someone might say... Steve, why didn't you just give the deer all day? But I saw where I hit him, and I hit him in the back right leg, but kind of in between, like, the hind quarter and the, the lower leg. But sure. he couldn't use his back right leg at all. Yep. Um, And I kind of know, I saw it, like, dangling. So I knew that, like, in my opinion, this wasn't a situation where you give this deer all day or eight hours and he dies. I'm thinking, like, the only way I'm gonna kill this deer is by putting another bullet in him. you know so I didn't feel that if I just gave the deer a ton of time you know in, in that first bed you know then I'll find him. So I chose to go right after him. Um, but once I bumped him that first time, I knew with that blood trail being so thin, it's like I need more help than this because my eyes are constantly on the ground and knowing that I need to put another round in this deer to finish him off, And I felt very bad about it, but like, I was like, I need to get some help. So fortunately my two cousins, um, I knew where they were hunting. They were, they already had their buck tags filled. They were together in a, in a spot that I actually put them doe hunting. And I had to drive, like, I kid you not about 30, 40 minutes away, hiked out of the woods, you know, drove all the way to where these guys were in one of my stands, pull them out. But. I thought of a really good strategy, and I would recommend this for someone in this situation, is I had, once we got back to my blood trail where I, you know, jumped the buck, um, I had those guys stay on the blood while I would stay 30 to 50 yards ahead going real slow. I never looked for blood at all while they were looking for blood because I knew that if any chance this deer sees me or sees us, it's going to be a quick shot. like I needed to put my entire focus on getting a shot versus looking for blood and that's exactly how we ended up catching up to that deer um the blood was real real thin I mean we did follow it for, for several hundred yards until we came upon the buck but that's how I got to finish them off was um me just being able to not look for blood and as they would get closer to me I'd just go another 10 yards and for quite, for very long periods of time, maybe sometimes 10, 20 minutes, I would just be standing there doing nothing, but just like scanning the area. Yeah. Um, but I just went super, super slow, took my time. And sure enough, we caught up to him where he was laying down and I was able to put a finishing shot off. I only had a neck shot, but he dro- I dropped him right in his tracks. However, I will say, I don't want to get too far ahead and say I made the greatest shot. He ended up he did end up start running and uh, I took several shots cause I found my clip and in, in between this whole process of time, but out of one of the shots the, the last shot when he was just standing there um, I shot him. I was fortunate to shoot him right in the neck and dropped him.
1: You know, and that's the thing and I appreciate you being, you know, extremely open to everybody. I think people appreciate this and there's been, I've been in multiple gauntlets similar to what you're talking about over the years and, it's always a process. Not everything's going to be perfect. And, you know, being, being consistent and not giving up and having a strategy and plan to make sure things come together is important. A couple of things I'll backtrack on is, you know, it's interesting. You knew this deer was going to be an area. And I always go back to that point is having at least enough information to make some, some better decisions on where you want to be and why. And it's this, I'll say it's, um, these traditional habits that some of these deer have and it's interesting yep. that you you explain that there there was a mentality where the deer would particularly have preferences and a lot of those preferences could be you know based on you know snow load food preferences, you know, what their current nutritional status is, temperature changes, you know, the habitat type, the cover, related cover, the security, the distribution of that cover, right? Those are all the factors that may go into deciding an area and its preference, and you have historical knowledge that give you that information. The other piece is finding buck beds, and I just want to talk about that real quick. How do you find buck beds, and what are the what are the critical items that allow you to, you know, kind of figure out, okay, this is likely utilized by a buck rather than a group of does, or, you know, in some cases it could be a single doe, um, but how do you kind of discern that versus other areas? What, what are the typical, and, and this example specifically, because obviously we have evidence, right? We have evidence yep. that a deer used that area, and it happened to be a buck, and it happened to be an area that you thought was a buck, you know, location it would typically have preference in. So let's explain what the location is like and why.
0: Yep. Well, and I will say, yeah. I mean, you're as as a deer hunter, scout, or whatever, you're gonna you're gonna come upon buck beds that you know aren't as primary. And this is what I would call a secondary bedding area, but a primary winter bedding area. Because once again, this is the only good winter habitat within that general area that these deer live. Um, I found these buck beds over the years mainly from shed hunting and. The shed hunting was was very key to this as well because, once again, there's almost always a big deer living in this one clear cut, but multiple times throughout, we're talking like 12, 15 years of history in this area, most of the bucks that lived in this one clear cut, I would find their sheds on this wintering point. In fact, the bed that I kicked my buck out of that he was laying in, I have found other big buck sheds in this bed before. Um, So the shed hunting and, and tying all that information together was huge too because I'm also knowing, okay, not only am I finding beds in a good wintering habitat, but deer that had normally lived in this one particular area, this clear cut I keep talking about, I knew those deer individually, yet I would find their sheds on this wintering point many times in these beds, there's not, there's not a great food source in this area. I feel like when these bucks do this winter shift, I honestly think they're spending tremendous amounts of time bedded up. Like they're not doing a ton of feeding in the winter, like, you know, somewhere in certain places in the country or places that you guys manage, like that you put out really great food sources. There is minimal feed in this area. So these bucks are not putting on, you know, they're not putting on much for fat throughout the winter, but I think they're using what fat reserves they have by not moving much at all and just barely getting by, almost like a semi-hibernation mode out there. Um, but these beds are extremely well used. I mean, you, they are not just noticeable. They're beat to the ground. Um, there's divots in them. A lot of them are full of, of deer poop, hair, and they just get used every year. And, and the predominant wind in our area is usually Southwest to West. And this being on the East side of the Hill, they, I'm, I'm not always the biggest fan of, of wind-based bedding. Like it happens a lot, but I don't always see it as much as what people say. They, they almost think that it's always wind-based, but in the winter, when you have wind deer will almost always bed on the leeward side because they want to get out of the cold wind. And, uh, it's just the perfect scenario for for, for for winter bedding out there. Like I said, I'll, the only thing that's really lacking is a good food source. But these beds are so worn down, um, you you can sometimes see them from, I kid you not, if you get the right angle, you'll see this bed from 80 to 100 yards away. There's, there's, there's some of them are beat down, there's not even a leaf in them
1: it's interesting because you bring up a couple points so people in large agricultural areas i'm thinking like iowa indiana illinois those type of areas and um you know these deer are more inclined their winter severity is a little bit less than yours but they're inclined to spend their time very close to adjacent food and they'll give up you know shelter opportunities and in my case is building shelter belts in, in accordance with the deer preferences and habitat and thinking about like snow loads, et cetera. Like for example, you know, trees of higher canopy and structure provide better snow loads, uh, snow load limitation where, you know, like shorter white cedar, you know, depending on their age and structure will provide better wind shear advantage to the deer. So you've got to look at the the habitat conditions in concert with the deer's preferences in your particular areas where they have low food sources. They typically prefer locations like you're talking about that have that, i don't know they have that um combination of you know uh sheltering you know type you know cover that gives them the advantage and you know food preferences yep. obviously are starting to wane at that point and so they put a big emphasis on you know particular areas. so hence your decision to sh- you know shift so again i mean it's all like you know it's it's considering the weather conditions in concert with everything else like you know, deer adjusting to you know winter. You know, weather is is obviously really important, and that will drive decisions. You know, sometimes in cases, you know, beyond hunting pressure, you know, where deer will, will end up residing. So it's a combination of many things that kind of get to this decision of where you're at. So yep. I want to go. I want to go past the deer. I want to get get beyond the deer. The deer story is fantastic, by the way, Steve, and I appreciate you explaining you. everything you did and and it, people paying attention to these locations and looking at the vegetation quality and then putting the story together or why I think that's important that you start doing that on your own property but let's fast forward let's start to let's start to look at the data because you've had some time to collect data you know post yep. you know post this this gun kill and we started to start to diagnose you know what you've seen over the the hunting season that would be beneficial for your planning ahead kind of phase of this this next you know this next go around
0: yep um yeah so you know on the on the bright side um it, I, I, mean, you never know because it's public land, but it seems like a lot of our bigger deer um, survived. Getting some, quite, you know, just already scouting and checking cameras, and you know, already seeing a lot of you know big deer, big deer showing up. I'm really excited for for next season. I think there's going to be tremendous potential for you know for for just having many different opportunities, different targets. Um, but what what I think I'm going to do a lot is just especially get to know a lot of these individual deer a lot better and, and I'm doing it, you know, especially this time of year. Another key point though, that, you know, cause we talked about winter is a lot of what I'm going to do this time of year may not be where that deer is living right now. Uh, I think almost one of the titles to this podcast, I think could be like winter shift or something like that, because where a lot of these bucks are wintering isn't where they're at, even a majority of the gun season or especially archery season. So, you know, I'm also going back into some of these areas, um, you know, looking for sign and and it's tricky because you don't always know what deer making certain sign, but you know, I think when you came to one of my scouting classes, I did, I think you can understand that even though it's big woods, that these bucks do have their own territories, their own areas. And I, I really go back into those areas and just try to dissect things even more, Um, you know, trying to figure out what they're doing. And then also uh, just coming up with a new game plan for next season, especially, you know, one, one thing that kind of threw a curveball this year up in our area was we finally had acorns in like a three year period. And that really did change a whole bunch of things um, this season. Now I'm, I'm banking on next year we're going to have another acorn crop because the reason why we didn't have acorns for a few years was due to gypsy moth problems. So, I'm kind of readjusting things as these food sources are changing and really coming up with a whole new game plan based on based on you know having acorns and it's something I haven't had to do in a few years. So, definitely uh, there's a lot of changing to to my hunting plans, especially for next season.
1: And I think that's all good. And it's funny because you're talking about seasonal shifts and interests. And I'm talking about, and with my clients, making sure we maintain homeostasis or static state where the deer are utilizing the property all the time. So- Today, I had a -a three-and-a-half-year-old buck enter my property, and I talked about this in the last podcast where I said, I'm a North Slope, you know, we got snow, it's cold today, you know, deer shouldn't be on my property, but they are, and, um, Mm you know, that wind shear and all that that goes into it, and their whole status on metabolic conservation, they're thinking about their, you know, their state, we want to give this deer this ultra-conservative lifestyle where they have, you know, these opportunities to coexist on the property, and they're not imbalance, meaning they have the right amount of food, the right amount of cover. So, you know, juxtapositioning, you know, certain attributes, like for example, having, you know, we'll say kind of a thermal area and adjacent to a clear cut is always, you know, kind of these this you know pristine opportunity to keep there on your property longer. The negative to that is it depletes your property's reserves. So you lose that we call it natural capital on this podcast. You're losing those natural reserves But in this case, Steve's talking about, you know, kind of these habitual shifts and weather shifts and all that stuff where when you're building your property, you want to have consistency and consistency allows Mm -hmm. for consistent information and, you know, consistent planning and predictive kind of analysis pieces of this. So when I'm thinking about you, Steve, I'm saying, okay, how does he take this data and start to predict what is going to happen next season? You know, if you're predicting, you know, acorn crop or food availability in your area, where in our side, we're we're making sure we're consistent in putting in food plots, we're consistent in cutting, we're consistent in planning, we're consistent in doing all those things. I'm not planting trees, planting thermal cover, those type of things, screening shelter belts, all those things that go along with your property. What are you doing from the data standpoint to say, okay, you know, I'm targeting these and we're talking a large number of deer, but I'm going to start to target these four or five deer in the equation. And think of one particular deer that you think, you know, had some tells this year that makes him maybe more on the hit list and and what are the factors that are going to go into that particular deer? And how are you going to get them early in the season so you're not worried about the gun season pressure and everything you had to deal with this season? So you're getting them during bow season. What? Are, give us some story behind maybe your next steps yep. thinking ahead.
0: Yeah, and I'm just going to bring up this one deer I called Split Brow. Um, in fact, I brought you guys into this area, um, and when we, you know, when we did the scouting class. Okay. I think if I remember right, I can't remember if I showed you his. His his early you know his early fall bedding area, but what was amazing was, um, I don't know why I didn't hunt this deer early on. I I felt more confident like in that mid October period. Do you remember where uh, I showed you that? You know, we went. It was we went up we went up a big ridge. There's already acorns dropping. We oh, checked yeah. the camera. Remember, there's already yep. so that that's where this deer lives. I think and, we went uh, I
1: think we went a little closer in there than you wanted to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's oh, no. true too. I yeah. I felt like to really get the full experience, you know, I had I had to do that, but what what was amazing was like everything I thought that deer was going to do um last year, it it was like it was like clockwork textbook and yet I didn't I don't know I really don't know why. I was kind of stuck on another deer early in the season. Um, And I think, you know what I think really got me was the other deer that I was hunting, and I I showed you pictures, it was a cell cam situation where like consistently getting pictures without going into an area and disturbing it. And um, what honestly happened was as soon as we got that full moon like that, I think they call it the harvest moon in September, that deer did a complete like he didn't leave the area but for some reason he got extremely nocturnal and i i completely stayed out of the area like up until sep it was like a 10 day period i got like had the deer on camera four or five different times in the daylight on the cell cam on a lone white oak that that as it's to my knowledge when i went in there a couple weeks ago there was still a f- some acorns under that tree because there was just a lot of acorns in that general area. It was like marbles, but that deer, it was like September 26th, all of a sudden only went to that Oak tree, um, you know, during nighttime hours, like not that late though. Like I think he just shifted his bedding slightly. I don't really know why because it's not a high pressured area. Um, It might've just been a sense that like, in the past, they almost sensed that hunting season's coming or something near that. But that was a deer, it was more based on the fact that, like, I can monitor this deer with cell cams. Um, that was a deer that I, and I don't hunt early season a lot, but I hunted it a couple times anyways, and no luck. It stayed nocturnal. But the deer in that other area where I brought you guys, everything I thought that deer was going to do, it did. In fact, I had a scrape right near its... Uh, its main core bedding area, um, and I can't, like I said, I can't remember if I showed you this scrape or not, but, however, that deer, even on opening day is it, uh, of archery in Pennsylvania, when it came out of its bedding area, it hit that scrape, and even in the first week, it hit that scrape three or four times in the daylight. And yeah. the, right, you know, w- within within shooting, much shooting light. Like, And, and this that deer there has done lived and done the same things, similar to like two years in a row. And I think like, you know, I, yeah, I'd like to say I'm fine tuning a lot, but like, I'm also looking back and looking through the history and the consistencies that I'm having with individual deer. Like now's a time when my mind is a little more free. And I look at a deer like this, when you watch it for two years and it's doing a lot of similar things and not making a lot of changes. Cause some deer don't always act that way. Like, When you see those really consistent patterns for multiple years, that's when I get really excited. Like, okay, this deer is actually killable. Because some of them, I'm not going to say some of them are unkillable, but some of them are just a lot more unpredictable.
1: Yeah, and I've had the same situation. I have a deer of a similar status that's pretty unpredictable. He's hard to kill. To that point, though, you mentioned something just briefly. And I think it's important for people to consider this just from a sociobiology standpoint is, you know these particular deer have individual kind of personalities you know we we personalize this, but they have preferences, and some deer are more social than others. That's really kind of an important factor in the decision to go after a deer. They could be very social but not extremely mobile and The other piece of it is some of these deer that are somewhat sedentary, they like to stay in areas you know they may have shifts for other reasons and who knows what sometimes those reasons are. It could be human hunting pressure intrusion. It could be animal intrusion, animal pressure. It could be other deer in their areas. You know, they may be more reserved because of their physical status. So you almost have to look at the deer's physiology, his natural behavior in the environments that he's in, you know, the food preferences in those areas. You know, how individual can you get with giving, you know, kind of a humanized take on some of these attributes? And And sometimes it's just seasonal weather shifts and they become, you know, more placated in an area where they don't. They don't want to move. And it's not to say that they're shifting bedding locations, you know, 100%. They may just stay in those bedding locations lower because it's a comfort factor. And, you know, you don't know mm-hmm. what's, you know, what other things have been going on in that deer's environment that have kind of changed its preferences and stimulated it to be more conservative in its approach and movement. So there's a lot that goes into individualizing a deer, looking at its historical, habitual habits and what it prefers and what areas it prefers and I've I made some mistakes as you know I talked to my partner today I was like I made some mistakes on a deer I didn't take the data on that deer for next season and, and without that type of data you know I have some data but I don't have the data I think I need to kill this deer and you know without that type of data I'm I'm creating some guesswork in next season and I know we've talked previously about this annual patterns and preferences, but. My areas are so disturbed, and the deer don't make it to the next age class. You don't really get the the metrics to make some of those decisions. Sure. So, yeah. you know, it's so individualistic for you. And when you're starting to focus on a singular deer, and I think if you have kind of the idea that he's going to follow an annual, annual pattern, you know, that would have to be over multiple seasons of indicators that say, you know, this deer will do these things in these conditions, or will come in these areas in, in these conditions, and. I, I don't have I don't have if this, but then that in my equation with a lot of deer, and there's enough things going around my area to stimulate the deer where they would not have annual sequences of movement that I can't really say that I can rely on this data. I just need to know what areas they tend to use, why, and I kind of put a story together in, in that capacity, and, and um, I'm doing the same thing now with some of my trail camera data, so I don't sure. know how that relates well to you, Steve, but... Kind of fits in the discussion you you were just kind of talking about.
0: Yeah, just real quick, I will touch on you know what, what I do as far as you know dissecting a lot lot of that data, like you know a lot. You've also seen how I kind of cluster cameras in areas, and I've probably talked about this before, but it's still good to bring back up. So, say maybe you know I have ten cameras in like a even maybe like a fifty acre area, and that's just that's just a not even the most accurate number it, it can vary in many different situations but say you have those 10 cameras or say maybe more like 100 acres like i pay close attention to where i see deer on certain cameras and and then i'll go back and look at weather conditions uh time of year i'll also think of you know was there hunting pressure and it's just amazing how clues start to come up like that just wasn't a random shift by that deer. Like that deer went to that area for a reason. Sometimes it's a mile or two away also, but through trail cams and really dissecting and, 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 and trying to figure out the reasons why you're seeing these movements in certain areas. Like that's to me is the biggest key to learning about an individual buck because it's not like we got GPS collars on them and we can track their every step. Like, you can't keep an eye on these deer, especially in the woods where I'm at without running, you know, a lot of trail cameras, but that information is so crucial, you know, to pay attention to, especially to look back on this time of year, like when it went to an area and figuring out why it went to an area based on a lot of different factors.
1: And I think that's important that people don't degrade the fact that people are using cameras as a resource and sell cameras as a resource. I know there's those debates that are out there all the time and it's not you know and i said this in the last podcast some of this predictive modeling this ai stuff that people are util- utilizing it doesn't really give all the indicators of what a deer will actually do they're wild animals but you know you can in your environments you can start to utilize that for kind of getting the story together and it's telling yourself a story and that's part of the that's just part of the hunt and the experiences that you had this year was you're just experiencing the hunt and sometimes it doesn't have to be as predictive as you think, or you know, modeled the way where it's like, okay, you know, deer comes from area A to area B and I kill it. You know, it's it, it that that almost takes the fun out of it. And to my point earlier when I was doing my rant, Steve, I, I, I want people to recognize like these hard to hunt areas that we're living in. And I, I'm not degrading anybody that has like, you know, a plethora of bucks and they're in this metropolis and they're they're, they're this island and, and a sea of cropland. I mean, that doesn't good for you. I think that's amazing. I think you have to be smarter how you're managing your landscape and trigger control. Whereas, you know, we can build great habitats in my area or in your areas. We have to be very focused on what deer want. So being focused on what deer want and why in this equation is really all it boils down to. And just trying to put the pieces together and intercepting them. And again, this postseason, you know, taking the time to look at the data, you put spreadsheets together, one deer using what, what were the conditions? We've always said, you know, climate's king and cold weather's the change. And if it's triggering deer to move into a particular location or move more, then those are the days you have to focus in on and, and take pride in you know collecting and analyzing that data. Because the reality of it is if you don't take the time to look at the data you're just setting yourself backwards a little bit more next year when you start to dial in their natural movement and what deer want to do. And that's, that's my take on it.
0: Yep. No, that's, that's totally right. And, you know, just to kind of, I'm sure we're probably getting a little close to the end here, but just to kind of touch on what we've been talking about. And just the fact that like, I will honestly say, and you know, once again, did the buck I got this year in Pennsylvania, was not my biggest buck, although I'm I'm very happy with it, no regrets at all, but honestly, I'm probably more happy about that harvest, honestly, than any other deer I've ever got, because I can't think back of any time when I had no recent history with that particular deer on that, on that point, on that wintering point, and like, I told myself that, I'm going to use this strategy for three or four days in a row, whether I see this deer or not and stick to it and predict that that's where that deer is going to go without even knowing it's there, it ever being there ever. And to like do that and you pretty much the bed that I was hunting, like I said, I was 15 yards from that first bed that that deer and many other bucks have used. Like, like that's where you start to, I don't want to say, I don't feel prideful, I'm not bragging, but like that's when you pat yourself on the back a little bit and it's like, you know what? It all paid off like all this all the scouting, um, learning that area, learning how deer use the area, and to just see it all come together and and all no, it was all based on scouting. It wasn't like I went in there, saw the buck one day and went back there the next and killed them, like, it was all based on that prior homework, homework that you could be doing this time of year, and that I do do, and I know you and others do, but, like, I've never felt so, so much of a fulfillment or a sense of achievement on any other deer but this one, and it's just, I still feel it to this day, and I, I am proud of myself for that, and, I mean, certainly I give, give all glory to God. Um, You and I are both Christian guys and I know he had a big part in it and I'm super thankful for that, but I am proud of how it all came together.
1: Yeah. And I, I think there, there are certain aspects of it that, you know, you have to applaud yourself on the success in it is, is not the harvest. It's, it's the story that came together. And again, it was a bit of predictive modeling on your part. Hate to sound technical about it, but like you put the pieces together and when you can start putting the pieces together to your story, to your, you know, the the inside of your loins at this point feel that level of success of achievement, that it's hard yep. to, it's it's when you don't experience that. And it doesn't matter the deer that you killed. Heck, it could have been a six pointer, Steve, and it doesn't have to be 20 yeah. inches wide. It was, it was, I was able to put the story together. And some people that may not have the caliber deer that Steve has killed on the wall, but have those moments where they figured it out, man, I tell you, and, and I've had moments like that. You just explained a moment that those are memories that we we don't forget. And so you yeah. know, part of this is building memories on the land that you have and the opportunities that you get of capitalizing on them. And sometimes it doesn't always come together. These stories recently have been all about success. But the failures yeah. along the way got you to the point of success you know, your commitment to many different things in life, whether it's God, you know, your commitment to the outdoors, your commitment to your family, you know, you're gonna get someplace in in life. And when it comes to the deer piece of it, it's really kind of creating this knowledge base and this experience base that really kind of excels you. And and that's where I see, you know, my clients and your clients going we're taking people to the next level and experience and it means so much to them, um, particularly your large slew of clients, you know, my slew of clients this year that were successful and people that are planning ahead to be more successful going forward. So, you know, hopefully this is inspirational to some folks because it makes me feel good having the conversation with you today.
0: Yep. No, thanks a lot. And maybe, maybe just my last words will be that, You know, I really do encourage. It's it's that time of year. I know some of us are still hunting a little bit too, but I base a lot of my success on doing homework this time of year. Once again, I would never fill my tag on that individual buck this year had I not been doing the homework this time of year. So, know a lot of us can feel a little bit burnout. You know, it's been a long season. It's been a grind, but this is really when that next season starts, and that's the way you can look at it. Whether you've had success or not this year be like now starts a new year for next season and if you put in the work now and you continue to work hard this time of year it's definitely going to pay off uh the following seasons
1: all right steve thanks i want to end on that thank you for your time thank you for your vulnerability explanation and participating and being a part of our podcast you know i love talking to you and and uh there'll be more from us in the future
0: All right, thanks a lot for having me as always, and uh, Merry Christmas to everyone as well.
1: Absolutely. All right, Steve, talk soon.
0: See ya. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out WhitetailLandscapes.com.